On today's show, a lot of heartburn over the proposed food tax increase. And the question, censure over impeachment. Representative Ben McAdams is on the censure train. Tune in Monday through Thursday, 9 to 11 for Dave and Dijanovic. Now is the time to find your color, your paint, and everything to get started during red, white, and blue savings at the Home Depot. Transforming your room is easier than ever. With the best deals online and in-store, you can confidently select your color and the tools for your next paint project. Get a colorful new experience and the right paint for the right price. Save $10 on one gallon and $40 off three and five gallons for a limited time only at the Home Depot. More saving, more doing. Limit 25 gallons per household. See store for details. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership. I'm Jess Larson. Today on the show, we've got Richard C. Wilson. Uh, but the source will tell you what their expertise is related to your own domain. If they made money in the space where your investment is, that's a huge advantage. If they live local to the assets, they can do due diligence on it easily. That's a big advantage. Obviously, if you've known them for a decade, that's an advantage as well. Um, but I think a big difference between the larger families and the smaller is that if somebody has a fully professionalized family office team, CEO of the Family Office Club and, uh, and many other uh, ventures going. Richard, thanks for making time. Thanks, Jess. So um, to give people a, a bit of a, a background, you know, between the books and the businesses and the events and stuff, can you give us kind of a, the elevator pitch on what you're up to these days? Sure, sure. Uh, well, the Family Office Club is a private club. We have uh, 1,750 registered investors, and then we have uh, – getting close to a thousand subscribers and they come to our live events. We do 25 of those a year and we, we live stream them and record them. And um, the family office club is just looking to make the whole industry more transparent and easy to navigate. Whether you're somebody who just went through a liquidity event and now you're worth 10, 20, 50 million, hundred million plus, or whether you're somebody who's raising capital, the industry has always been opaque and secretive and hard to navigate just as capital raising is. And so we're just looking to kind of democratize it and digitize and collect best practices. And, you know, we've put out 13 books and 1,800 videos and, you know, got Family Office podcast and uh, a bunch of different resources where we just look to give away more than our competitors so that we can, uh, you know, make business friends over time. That's great. So um, when you think about kind of the, the success you've had in really becoming a high visibility expert in the space, what do you attribute that to? I think it is defining a sandbox that was so valuable to compete within, in my mind, that I would do just about anything within ethical, don't ignore my family type boundaries to get it done over the long term. In other words, it doesn't matter. When I started out, I just decided it didn't matter if it was going to take three years or seven years or 15 years. If I could become a top expert on family offices nationally or globally, it was going to be worth it. So I did things in a way that would make no sense unless you were really in the industry for the long term. And I think that it's hard to compete against that when somebody might be retiring in five or six years from now or when someone's not sure about the industry yet. They're not sure about their role in the industry. They haven't been able to monetize speaking publicly or figure out how to monetize, putting in the effort to write a book, et cetera. So I think it's that that long-term vision, which is like this, this strange duality of you're being more generous than anyone else competing against you, but your, your competitors see you as the most kind of competitive person, uh, yet the other people see you as the most generous. It's this weird kind of dichotomy that happens at the 
same time based on what your perspective is. Yeah. Well, um, and you know, there's so many people that they hear the term family office, they get a, they get kind of a, a general idea about it, but for folks who haven't necessarily been in the space, can you give people a little more of a feel behind the curtain of what exactly it is and how they actually run? Yes. So essentially a family office is a full balance sheet wealth management solution for the ultra wealthy. So if you're worth a hundred thousand, you need different wealth planning, you have different headaches than someone worth 30 million and someone worth 30 million is drastically different day to day in their portfolio complexity and someone who's worth 600 million. And so the more complex the situation, uh, the more expensive, a little mistake that you make might cost you 100,000, 500,000 when you're worth hundreds of millions of dollars. So it becomes more and more advantageous and worth it to make sure you've got a great core team, all the moving pieces are being connected, follow-ups are being done, regulatory tax exposures being managed, and that opportunities are being seized that are worth the time of the family with the downsides protected. And um, that what, what really drove the growth of the industry is people realizing that the busiest people on planet Earth, some of the busiest, are the wealthiest. Everyone wants their time. Everyone wants access to their capital, et cetera. So they're more likely to drop a ball or two. And each ball they drop might be $100,000 mistake at a time. So that, that's really driven the uh, popularity of the industry. And you know the family office space has really been exploding the past seven or eight years. And I've been running the family office club for 12 years. And just now, the investment industry is recognizing family offices across the board, while the general public has no idea what a family office is typically. Yeah. You know, we've, we've been lucky enough to have a couple of different billionaire families as co-investors, and then on the consulting side, um, have kind of another four or five as clients for, for different initiatives. And it is, it is a little bit of a different world. And um, it's funny... Um, the, the assumptions you make versus reality when you actually get to spend time with them, right? And uh, right. It, it really started to make so much sense why they were becoming less and less likely to pay the kind of fees that private equity funds wanted to charge and instead just hiring the professionals directly and, and getting right. rid of any kind of conflict of interest. And, and you know, we saw so many uh, peers in the private equity space when we used to run our fund moving over to you know, both the institutional side and the family office side where they're saying like, Hey, why don't I just skip the 20% carry and, uh, <laughs> and have them come work in house. Right. You brought up so many good points there. I didn't want to be too long winded on why family offices are growing. But one of the reasons is what you just pointed out is that most wealth management firms, private banks, and even most multifamily offices don't help at all in direct investments. And they're just like, hey, we'll diversify your funds, but you know, commodity stocks, bonds, fund managers. Um, and then when direct investments come up, they try to say, oh, no, no, well, here's a nice REIT on our platform. So you can still be under our fee, you know, structure or something. And uh, the reality is these families worth at least 30, 50 million or much more. They almost always are going to do direct investments. So they end up doing them in an under-advised way. They end up diversifying and not focusing enough to actually learn what they're doing on the direct investments. And a lot of money is just burnt through mistakes that if the multifamily office space was a bit more holistic, you know, could have been could have been prevented. So I think it's it's interesting you brought that up. And then the second point about fees on skipping, you know, the carry or the management fee is that I found that families may want to just lower fees overall, but what they want to do most often 
is lower fees for average or below average performance or lower fees when they're already losing money. You know, it used to be that stockbrokers charged you per share or per trade placed. And then it was like the holy grail of wealth management. People started saying, oh, we're fee only, we're fee only. We're not taking a commission on trades. Uh, like that was the white knight approach and we're going to save you from those evil brokers that charge you per trading commission. Um, but really it's fee always. It doesn't matter if they're just charging you a fee for what you could have gotten through an index or charging you a fee for losing your money. They're still charging you that fee. And so I've just found that families like it when people are aligned and you have like a JV situation or performance fee only or something where when great things happen, you get paid handsomely. But if they don't, then you don't. You know, so you're just you're both in it to win versus being charged just for accepting their money and existing. Yeah. So when in, in your experience, you know, what, what do you guys run like 25 events a year? You guys do a ton of events. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, and you've got, you know, hundreds of hundreds of investors and hundreds of family offices, you know, over time at these things. What do you see as some of the biggest mistakes for people who are looking to raise money from ultra high net worth individuals? What are, what are some of the cardinal sins you see? Yeah, sure. I'll rattle off a whole bunch here. I love that question. We had 300 family offices on stage at our events just in the past 12 months, and they complain about a lot of the same things. So one is that somebody can't say in one sentence the compelling reason why anyone else should care that they exist on planet Earth. Like, why are you unique from your competition and from what everyone else is doing? And how do you add value and getting that down to one sentence? People would rather spend $30,000 on their pitch deck than spend 30 minutes or three hours meditating on exactly what that one-liner is. That's a big mistake. A lot of people run around saying, like, hey, I've got this 30% IRR or this investment that is, you know, you should never say guaranteed, but, like, guaranteed not to lose money or it's almost no risk. And they try to focus on the performance aspects. And it's like running around with a, a McLaren engine and saying, look, I've got this engine, but it's actually faster and more powerful than the McLaren engine. And it's got more horsepower, but the investor really doesn't care about that um, out of the context of who you are and your credibility. Can they trust you? What's your track record? What's your consistency over the past decade? Where'd you come from? Who's on your team? What's your value add process? What's your one liner? Otherwise, they don't know whether they have a McLaren engine and then they're going to be sitting on plastic seats with no air conditioning and the wheel's going to fall off a mile down the road and you're out of business because all you had was a smart engine at the center and nothing else to get to the finish line. Uh, so that's a big mistake. A lot of people have a 40-page, 60-page pitch deck when usually they should be 15 to 19 pages or at least under 30. Uh, and most people don't have a nice one-pager that is visual. You look at it. You see a key value-add process. You see who's on the team, that they're credible, you know, uniform professional headshots. You see a bit on the track record or history of the firm. It's a big mistake not to have that one-pager. And a lot of times people don't because they're going from friends and family or people that came in through a referral to now try to get in not only cold, but cold at organizations that see a ton of deal flow compared to your peer from Goldman or whoever invested in your first round of your deals. Uh, so there's more scrutiny and more challenges of getting your, your foot in the door. So you really got to build a relationship first and up the game that you're playing with your investor relations and your capital raising or you just won't get in the door at places because they see a ton of multifamily independent sponsors or a ton of lower middle market private equity firms. So unless you're saying in the context of all that noise why it's important they should meet with you, 
then they're just not going to. They're going to archive your email, um, you know, in 15 seconds or less. They're going to scan it, and you know, you'll be gone. So those are some of the the top top mistakes that we just see over and over. But I think we we could do a whole podcast just on top mistakes. That's a good question. <laughs> so um, when you think about somebody that's doing it right, or you think about uh, a compelling pitch that you did hear somebody have a great one-liner. What what's some examples of, of anybody over your history that you feel like was doing it right? Sure. Um, I know one group uh, out of the Midwest, they have been doing senior living investing for 32 years, and that's all they do. That's a, that's a sign that they've probably figured some things out. They're focused on one asset class for that length of time. Most people are proud to show seven or 12 years of focus. Um, another one is a uh, asset manager that's grown by over a billion dollars in the last two years, and they only buy uh, one type of commercial real estate in one region of the United States. And they've been doing so over 23 deals as an independent sponsor, and they've done so so consistently that people send them deals first, and everyone knows that they will close. If they put something under LOI, they always close. And that combined with the fact that they have a very lean fee structure, one of the leanest I've ever seen, um, it just shows that they're long-term committed to their craft. And they're very consistent as well. And they're just, you know, down-to-earth, credible, humble guys. But they're just, it just shows that they're long-term because of their structure of how they put together their investments. And because of their fees, they're obviously not in it for just a year or two. And, and investors are always asking them, why don't you raise your fees? Just charge us you know, a third of what the industry charges are half. And they said, well, we don't want to stop raising a couple hundred million dollars a year. So no, we're not going to. We'll steep, still keep charging very little and we'll keep on raising a ton of capital. So that's an example. Um, another one is a group that came to us through our pitchdex.com uh, uh, internal agency group. And they were doing acquisitions in three different states of three different asset types and they were describing themselves as a boutique private equity firm. That's what you should not do. I think it's very helpful if you're a small firm to say, okay, well, out of the three states, what's the state where there's the most opportunity or where we reside and can get to most quickly? Or where also, if the states are all equal on deal flow, where the most investors are, so the investors will be local to the deals we do. And what is the one type of asset class we could focus on instead of the three? that we know the best or the most credible story we get the best deal flow uh, and maybe there's some crossover with what investors want the most too and then focus that story down so it's just far more credible when you're hearing a one-liner or trying to convince an investor to take a meeting the investor is thinking like is it believable is it credible do i have high conviction in this group do i trust that they're going to deliver and it's way more believable if you say all we do is invest in stem cell companies based in Southern California, or all we do is invest in cell storage in the greater Chicago area, and that's all we've been doing for seven years, it's way more believable that you are probably a relative expert on stem cells in Southern California or cell storage in Chicago because it's such a narrow focus. And as a small firm, I think that's what's what's really needed to break through. Yeah. You think about this unfair advantage of of being number one at something? Right. And um, when you take someone who is newer, who doesn't have a 14 year track record or a 32 year track record, and they're looking to produce one, they're looking to intentionally craft that story, but, you know, also pay the mortgage on the way to it. What kind of advice do you have about starting out or those early years um, as they're working towards that level of credibility? Yeah, really, really great question. I'm glad that uh, you asked it that way, too, because um, 
what I found is that if you can identify that right sandbox and define the area you're going to compete in with a keyword term or two, so that you're trying to own that keyword term in the mind of potential investors and for when people are looking for a solution in that area, um, if you can own that and find different ways to own it, then that will bring you potential investor leads. Um, and two other ways to look at it is you could figure out who is the most logical investor for this niche thing you have. And even if you haven't been doing it for 15 or 20 years, if you say, okay, well, the most logical investor for my stem cell investments in Southern California would be uh, medical healthcare practice owners, uh, people who have invested in stem cells already, or someone connected to the medical healthcare industry who lives locally to these companies. And then you can go figure out where those people congregate. Are they at a dental association of California meeting every quarter in San Diego? Are there national healthcare professional events uh, in La Jolla or San Francisco? Uh, you know, how do you get a database of medical professionals and find a compliance kosher way to get in front of them, stay in front of them, and find investors who don't have to be educated on the ABCs of your space? That, that would be a way to kind of break through the clutter. And then the other thing, uh, the last thing I would say is that when you're looking at a market and it's already saturated, then you just have to carve deeper into it to figure out where's the niche within the niche that you could really dominate. So with our wealth advisory work, we don't do traditional wealth management. We don't do stocks and bonds and uh, due diligence on fund managers. We're only helping people with either setting up a family office or helping them on the direct investment portion of their portfolio, which is very unique from what all the other multifamily offices are doing, which is very heavy on traditional wealth management aspects. So we can complement and work with other wealth advisors, but also the name of our firm, Centimillionaire Advisors, you know, we're really targeting $100 million plus net worth individuals, not the $10 million um, more mass ultra affluent that usually people refer to start at 10 or 30 million. And I think it's important that uh, whenever you hear someone give advice, you look at what they actually do and not just what they tell you, because maybe they're just trying to sell you something. Uh, but that's like what we're actually doing right now in real time is the positioning in the bigger market, but we're just taking that portion and carving it out. Like when we released our first book with Wiley on family offices, it went well, but we found a more competitive, valuable space to own would be a book on single family offices. And a niche within a niche of that is a book on how to start a family office. And if you can establish that positioning before somebody else, then you kind of own that turf or a percentage of that turf. You make it harder for others to enroach on your, on your turf. So I know that's a, a long answer, but those are some things to think about I found when starting out is how do you be truly unique, appeal to a very specific investor set very well. So when they look out, you are the only excedrin for their migraine and they don't want a blue pill. They want something specifically built for their type of headache. Interesting. Um, when you think about something like that, like a direct investment to the centimillionaire and up, um, in your mind, what is different about the mindset or what the, you know, a pitch that someone's making somebody, you know, sold their company. Now they've got 25 million bucks versus that hundred million plus, you know, 250 million plus level individual. What do you feel like, um, any changes in investment materials or, or approach would be to actually appeal to the different mindset there? Yeah, I think that the uh, source of the wealth is uh, just as important, but also the size is important. 
uh, but the source will tell you what their expertise is related to your own domain. If they made money in the space where your investment is, that's a huge advantage. If they live local to the assets, they can do due diligence on it easily. That's a big advantage. Obviously, if you've known them for a decade, that's an advantage as well. Um, but I think the big difference between the larger families and smaller is that if somebody has a fully professionalized family office team, they may act as somewhat gatekeepers or at least advisors. So before they conduct a deal, they might help with due diligence, they might attend meetings with the principal, and you really do have to win over to some degree the team as well as the principal because oftentimes that principal is so busy and so many people are coming after them that unless you are number one or two on their stack of potential opportunities at a time, you're going to need the team's help to champion the way through uh, due diligence and get the deal to the finish line and get it done. Whereas with a smaller family, you might be dealing only with the principal. Maybe they have a CPA, they might hire a KPMG or someone for forensic accounting help, but it's going to be more about them and they might not be as sophisticated. They might not be as thorough because they don't have as many resources. Um, so you have to really, in both cases, education is highly important. But you have to just really understand that if somebody made their money in manufacturing and you're here showing them a deal in stem cells or self-storage, you have to be even more educational than you would be going to a professional, professionally ran $100 million plus family office. Because this individual probably doesn't know anything about your space and they might not admit that in the meeting that you're in. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, you know, the finance world, um, in my experience, there's so many opportunities uh, for self-focus and for people to be doing a lot of look at me, look at me, right? And be thinking uh -huh. about how much money I'm going to make off this. And you see the mistakes people make, whether it's whether it's with somebody's $500 an hour or $800 an hour lawyer, or whether it's with their receptionist, like people who show up and they they discount other folks or they objectify other people and they're they're only really trying to connect with that principal and and just the lack of transparency of understanding how likely that principal is to go back to the receptionist and say hey what were they like when they were sitting out here before we got here or you know uh those those other professionals around them like uh what a huge influence that is and by not treating everyone like a real life human, how how damaging it is to their chances. And anything you'd right. say about that? Yeah, well, I'm glad you brought that up. Usually at the very end of a podcast interview, someone says, hey, is there anything else you want to add? And I always bring up what we're about to say now is that I think you know, the number one value in our company, and I think the number one most important thing in life and business for raising capital or for running a family office is integrity. And not just moral integrity of, hey, align what you do with what's right, but aligning everything in your business and everything in your life with where you want to go and what you want to do. You can have great core values on your wall, like I, I hope, you know, are seem to be working well, so I hope they're great. But if you don't actually act in alignment with them, if you don't hire based on them, if you are going running every morning at 5 a.m., but then you're having hot dogs for lunch every day, you know, that's not in line, just like as if you say you're long-term dedicated to your craft and you are wanting to build a long-term relationship with the family office and then you treat their secretary poorly or you go out to dinner and you're very dismissive and rude um, and high maintenance to the staff at the restaurant even, et cetera, it just kind of shows that maybe you just had a thin veil of professionalism and you're really kind of a jerk and that they shouldn't do business with you. So any sign that you are not professional, not committed, a jerk, not experienced, not serious, not respecting their time, 
not have done your own homework before showing up for a meeting, don't know your craft, any sign of that, and the family office is done. And the more sophisticated and connected they are, the quicker that they're done to the sense that, like, if you email them with a Yahoo email address or reply with a strange reply or you follow up three times within 24 hours, you just might be kind of dead to them. They just move on because they've got a million options of people pitching them. So they want to screen out all the riffraff and the, the non-serious players. And that's why when people email me or they come to a family office club, investor summit, or one of our capital raising workshops, and they show me their materials and they're like, yes, I have 27 years experience in XYZ and we're excellent and we can have so much value. Um, do you know anyone that would want to invest? And I say, well, you know, let's back up a second because you have all this experience and then your pitch deck is 45 pages of just a whole bunch of bullet points and text. There's no pictures of your team. There's no visual of your key process. There's no positioning one-liner. Over 27 years, you should have figured out why you're relevant and gotten that down to a sentence. So it's like the opposite of Steve Jobs making beautiful packaging to impute value on the iPhone. A lot of capital raisers have materials that are just hurting them and slowing them down in the marketplace. Yeah, that's such great advice. Well, listen, we're going to end part one here. Um, besides uh, Family Office Club website or following you on Twitter or looking up the book on Amazon, any other good places for people to connect or um, maybe check out yeah. your YouTube channel? What's What do you usually uh, – what do you recommend? Yeah, top two places would be uh, familyoffices.com. We've got a free book on the industry there and our event calendars on the homepage. And then if you are – Raising Capital. Um, there's an 80-page, like one-hour read book at CapitalRaising.com, and that again is free. Both of the books can be purchased on Amazon, but um, you know, if you love the PDF, then it could be your choice if you want to go purchase it paperback for a couple bucks. But we just try to give away that book as often as those books as often as possible to try to add value and plant some seeds so you can use some of those strategies. And then when they start to work, or you just feel intuitively that for sure you're making progress because of them, then you know, we can keep in touch over time. Well, uh, I've actually read both of them and would endorse them, you know, before before we had connected about having you on the show. So I, I would uh, definitely endorse them to anybody listening. Awesome. Thank you, Jess. Yeah. Well, that's it for the episode. One other thing I wanted to tell you about, if you remember the guys from Convoy uh, in episodes back, Ken Free and Trent Mano, I went on one of their CEO trips to New York and I met a guy named Brent Thompson very successful entrepreneur. He was former CEO of Jive Communications, big uh, company now, I think three or $400 million. Anyways, he, uh, he started a new company called blipbillboards.com. I'm super stoked they're a sponsor now. But I, I remember a year and some ago when I met him, I thought it was genius. Instead of having to buy six months or a year's worth of billboard um, for thousands of dollars, you can buy eight seconds at a time for like 10 or 20 cents. You pick what billboard you want it on, what time of day you want it to run. And it just puts so much power in the hands of, of marketers and CEOs who want to try something and see if it works. You can buy as many or as few as you want, change it as many times as you want. Uh, I think now our podcast is being advertised on billboards in like 18 different states because we have these guys as sponsors. We're pretty excited about it. Hope you check out blipbillboards.com. Thanks. Now's the time to find your color, your paint, and everything to get started during red, white, and blue savings at the Home Depot. Transforming your room is easier than ever. With the best deals online and in-store, you can confidently select your color and the tools for your next paint project. Get a colorful new experience and the right paint for the right price. 
Save $10 on one gallon and $40 off three and five gallons for a limited time only at the Home Depot. More saving, more doing. Limit 25 gallons per household. See store for details.